Previously in our study last week, Pilate had openly and publicly declared that he found no fault in Jesus. But the people, they didn't care. What did they say? We want him crucified. Crucify him. Those that were there gathered. Then symbolically, Pilate washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. I'm innocent of this blood. You see to it, he told them. And what did the chief priests and those gathered, what did they declare? They said, we will. They declared something that I think is very powerful, and it, it spreads down today through the Jewish nation. His blood be on us and our children. To appease the crowd, Pilate condemned an innocent man, knowingly condemned him, knowingly he was innocent, to die on a cross. And in his place, he, re- re- he released a convicted robber, likely a murderer, in Barabbas. It's very dangerous when you seek the approval of the people, especially when there's a crowd of people. It can be very convincing. That's what everybody wants. How could so many people be wrong? It's always important that as Christians we seek God's will, that we do what's right and not necessarily what the people are doing or what the people say we should do. Pilate sentences him to death. With that, we pick up in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 27. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, and they gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they reed in his right hands, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Matthew simply mentions that Jesus was scourged. He tells us in the praetorium, that's where they would have taken him to, It's a place that we visit when we go to Israel. The floor is down several layers underneath of the Church of Notre Dame. The Praetorium floor is believed to still be there. You can walk on it. It's a great place to sit and reflect that this might be very well possibly the very same place that Jesus received what we're about to to talk about. But Matthew just simply says he was scourged. They don't really tell us what that means or what that looks like. He assumes his readers are already familiar with what a scourging is. He assumes they're already familiar with what crucifixion is. Scourging was a Roman interrogation technique that would happen to everybody before they were scourged. Our culture here in the United States, we would never, ever stand for such cruel punishment. The Roman scourge, it was a type of whip. It consisted of a wooden handle, had several leather straps hanging from the end. They were weighted with balls of lead, often contained pieces of sharp metal and glass along the length of the leather. I have... What we purchased several years ago is a replica of a Roman scourge. It's a handle the soldier would hold. These leather, these lead balls at the end have points. These oftentimes would be glass and sharp bones and things like that embedded in these as well. Probably from the previous scourging, what they would take place. And this is something like what they would have scourged him with. Typically the victim's hands were tied above his head sometimes over a pole sometimes he actually hung from the ground dangling his feet off of the ground so that he couldn't move 
Typically, it was 39 lashes. 39 times with something like this. If you're interested, you can go on YouTube and find a guy who took a replica just like this. He built some ballistic-type gel, and he gives a demonstration of what it would actually do. 39 times. In many cases, the shock and pain alone would sometimes cause death, never making it to the crucifixion. Scourging received a nickname. They called it the halfway death. But Christ endured all the way to the cross. He didn't die through the scourging. Typically what would happen upon the first blow, you can see how this metal, they wouldn't just hit you and pull it back. They would lay it across your back hard. The metal hitting would cause bruises and contusion. The the sharp things would actually stick into the skin of the person being scourged. It's while they stuck in. He would leave it there. And the prisoner was encouraged to confess. Tell us what you've done wrong. Confess your crimes. And if they confess something, history tells us the Roman soldiers would then lift it straight up. If they failed to confess something and they didn't believe him, they would actually take it down their back, tearing more flesh with them. Jesus remained silent. He couldn't say a word. He couldn't even make something up. I don't know about you, but if I was getting scourged and I could make something up to lessen the pain, I'd be making all kinds of things up. But he couldn't do that. Why? Because that would have been a lie. And that would have been a sin. He couldn't do that. He remained silent. He never confessed to anything because he had nothing to confess to. And this process would be repeated over and over again. By the time it was complete, you can imagine what the back of the person would look like. The skin would likely be removed. The ribs possibly exposed and possibly broken. It would not be something very pretty. The Christian historian Eusebius wrote in the late 2nd and early 3rd century about scourging. He was speaking of martyrs, and this is what he said about them. Torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails, and their organs were exposed to sight. So literally just pulling your body off of you. Now you understand why I say it's PG-13. And some would even say, why do you tell us about this? Because I think we need to understand it. I think we need to, this is the time of year as we approach the resurrection day. Resurrection day, we need to consider these things. Sometimes, sometime either before, during, or after the soldiers did this, they had this process of mocking him, making fun of him. They mocked Jesus. They wanted to humiliate him. The Jews had mocked him as the Messiah, When he claimed to be the Messiah, they slapped him and they hit him and they spit on him. And now the Romans are mocking him. Why? Because he's claiming to be a king. He's the king of Israel, king of the Jews. What did they do? They put a scarlet robe on him. It was the color kings wear, the robe of a king, making fun of him. What did they do? Kings wear crowns. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Probably long thorns, probably pushed it down on his head. If If you know anything, head wounds tend to do what? They bleed a lot. They, they always look a lot worse than they really are. If you've ever seen a trauma, been around that, it'll, and I can just imagine as his back looks like it does, but his face is covered in blood also. To the point that he was considered unrecognizable. They put a reed in his right hand. It was 
image of a scepter. A king would have a scepter. It was, it was his rule. He was ruling with the scepter. But this was a reed. They made fun of him. They took the reed out of his hand. What did they do? They struck him on the head with it. Some king, who would ever walk up to a king that had the, held the power of life and death and take the scepter out of his hand and strike him on the head with it? You wouldn't live to see the next day. But they did this to Jesus. They spit on him. They bowed the knee to him. And they proclaimed sarcastically, Hail, King of the Jews. They're making fun of him. Hail, King of the Jews. Here he is, being beaten. Treating him, pretending like he's a king. My mind goes to Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. It's by those stripes that he bore that we are healed. Not necessarily physically, but ultimately, we will all be healed when we get to heaven when we see Christ face to face. It's by those stripes. You know, the soldiers did all this to mock him. To belittle him, to make fun of him. And I, 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 there's a part of me that goes, how could they do such? I would never do something like that. I would never, ever, ever, ever consider doing something like that. How could they be so cruel? Don't they know who this is? Don't they realize who this is, that who's, who's before them? Charles Spurgeon made the point that we too can mock Christ. Not the same way they did, but by the way that we live. By the choices that we make. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, you have mocked him by a feign. That means simulated or pretended worship. You've mocked him by a pretend or simulated worship. And thus you have put the purple robe upon him. In other words, there's the king, a chance to worship the king. And when you fail to do that, you're mocking him too. For that purple robe meant that they made him a nominal king. A king who was not in truth a king, but a mere show. He went on, he said, your Sunday religion, which has, which has been forgotten in the week, has been a scepter of reed, a powerless ensign, a mere sham. In other words, for those that say, I worship God on Sunday, and then the rest of the week they forget who he is, you're, you're mocking him. Is, is he a king or is he not a king? Is he a ruler of your life or is he not a ruler of your life? He went on, he said, you've mocked and insulted him even in your hymns and prayers, for your religion is a pretense with no heart in it. You brought him in adoration that was no adoration. A confession that was no confession and a prayer that was no prayer. Is it not so? When I read that from Charles Spurgeon, I thought I would never do something like this. I have nothing but the utmost respect for the Lord. I have nothing but honor for him. But then when I read that, I thought, have I always worshipped him the way that he deserves to be worshipped? No, I haven't. Have I always been the same person? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday? No. Have I been wrapped up in religious routine? Yeah. Have I made a confession that was no real confession at all? Yeah. Isn't that a form of mocking him also? We may not mock him the way that they did. But when we know he's the Messiah, when he, he, we know he's the king, and we fail to recognize him as such, with our life, with our mouth, 
aren't we also mocking him in just a different way? We are. When they were finished mocking Jesus, they took the robe off of him and put his own clothes back on, it said. Can you imagine what that would feel like? What happens when you have an opened wound and you put a piece of fabric on it? Then the blood begins to dry and you take the piece of fabric off a little bit later. That's what would have happened when he got to the cross. And they led him away to be crucified. Look at verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. They literally marched Jesus through the streets. It was like advertising for the Romans. Troublemakers beware. Criminals look out. Let everybody see that this man has been condemned to death and he's going to walk through the streets carrying his cross. You see, if you were sentenced to crucifixion, the scourging was part of it. After that, you had to carry your cross, the I-beam, the part that went across this way, the cross beam rather. The weight of that beam would be anywhere from approximately 75 to 100 pounds or so. It wasn't light, but it wasn't super heavy. You were usually stripped naked and your hands would have been tied to the wood. How would that have felt across the back that had been scourged? The place of the crucifixion, we know it's Golgotha, Calvary, that's what it means, was outside the city walls. It was along a main road that led into the city. The upright portions would have been left there in place. They would have just left them there for people coming in and out to see them. Some people think, oh, it was on a hill far away. And there is a hill on Golgotha. There's a skull there. There's a hill on the top. But it's not likely that he was crucified on a hill. It's likely he was crucified on the ground. That's where people came in and out of the city. It was the road to Damascus that came into the city of Jerusalem there. They wanted people to walk by. It was their way of saying, don't do something wrong or this will happen to you. Hmm. I wonder. I wonder if Jesus came in and out of the city of Jerusalem. I wonder if he passed by those upright posts with no cross beam on them. I wonder if he thought, a few more days, I'm going to be there. I wonder. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. Do you remember when Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Remember when he said that back in Matthew 16? This is what he had in mind. Taking up your cross meant I'm picking up the cross beam. I'm on one final journey to my death. The cross was not your daily struggle with sin. That's not what it represented. It wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about spiritual feelings. The cross was an instrument of death and only death. It was an instrument of brutal execution. Roman citizens not to be crucified unless by the order of Caesar himself. Roman soldiers never to be crucified. In our culture, I fear that sometimes we've glamorized the cross. 
We've sanitized the cross. We've made, we, we've beautified the cross. We've even made it beautiful sometimes. We've ritualized the cross. It's become a ritual in our lives. We've gone so far, I'll say this, as to worship the cross. Sometimes we worship the cross. The cross is nothing more than an instrument of death. Taking up your cross. Listen again. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. See, taping up our, taking up our cross is symbolic of laying down our lives for him. When we become a Christian, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm laying down my life. There is no turning back. I am following him. I am becoming dead. He is becoming alive in me. And I'm walking after him for the rest of my life. We've lost that hard stance of Christianity. Christianity has kind of become sort of watered down. It's become just, that's what we do on Sundays. That's not what he meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, follow me to the death, no matter what that death might be. Taking up our cross is that symbol of us laying down our lives. May the cross be a reminder to us as Christians of what it cost him to purchase you. I've heard the acronym Christians remembering our Savior's sacrifice. Don't beautify it. Don't idolize it. Let it be a reminder of what it cost Christ. This man... Simon, the Cyrene, Jesus, Jesus is probably struggling to carry his cross. He's been beaten so badly. They find this man, Simon, they compel him to bear his cross. He was from Cyrene, which is an area of North Africa. It's probably about 800 miles away from where they are. He probably didn't know anything about Jesus. It's likely he didn't. He probably wasn't given a choice. He was commanded by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross. However, when you look at the scripture, something interesting here. He was probably there in Jerusalem for the Passover. He's probably a Jewish man celebrating the Passover. But as you look at the scripture, there's something really, really cool here. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it tells us, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, but it says, The father of Alexander and Rufus. And he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So we know that Simon, the Cyrene, had two kids, Alexander and Rufus. And then at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, as Paul is closing out his letter, he says, greet Rufus. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. It's possible that Rufus is the son of Simon the Cyrene. Which means it's possible that as Simon carried his cross, he didn't know who he was, but somehow he became a Christian, a follower of Christ, and now his family is following Christ also. Once Jesus arrives at Golgotha, it said they told us they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. It was customary to give those who were about to be crucified a pain-numbing pain and mind-numbing drink. Some say it was myrrh, it was, to, it was supposed to be like a narcotic to deaden the pain. Others say they wanted to deaden the pain so they could prolong the, the, the crucifixion. They wanted to last longer, they wanted to be more impactful. But Jesus refused. I'm not taking anything that's going to numb this. He chose to face the spiritual and physical terror before him with his senses, sense, senses like touch, feel, senses, fully aware of what was going on. 
I, I often wonder if we run, I have to be careful here. But sometimes the minute we have to face something difficult, we want to run to something to numb our senses. I would say be careful of that. And I'm not saying don't do that. And please understand something here. He, if anybody needed pain medication here, it was probably him. Okay? But sometimes we want to run to something because we we want to numb ourselves from something that's going on. But he's relying on the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to empower him and to get him through this. No, I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to walk through it with you. Now, just I, I always have to be perfectly clear when I make a statement like that. If you have medication or you're on medication, don't just stop it without talking to your doctor, okay? There is medication that is truly needed in people's lives, and it does a lot of good things. Don't, don't just think that, no, I'm a Christian, I don't need medicine. That's not true. That's not true at all. But what I am saying is be careful that you're not running to medicine in place of Jesus. And if you're on it and you go, you know, and, and, you, feel like, and you feel convicted to get off of it, can I encourage you to please do it with your doctor? There's a medical way to do it. Don't just go, I'm going to quit everything tomorrow. Make sure you do it right. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Make sure you do it the right way. Because like I said, there are Christians who need medication. It's part of what they just needed. It's the way that it's, it's part of their life. But I also think there's Christians who run to medication to numb the pain when they don't necessarily need to. And I don't know which one you are, but I would say I would talk to my doctor about it. And I would let him know that you're a Christian. Let him know or her know that you want to try to get off this and see if there's a way that you can do that. And they can then work you down slowly from because so often in life that's even what our addictions become a way to numb the pain of something that we're, we don't want to endure in life I'll go run to this thing whether it be food or drugs or alcohol or pornography or shopping or whatever it is I want to make myself feel better so I'll run to this thing to try to numb the pain and Jesus said I'm not going to numb anything I know the Lord is with me Verse 35, they came, crucified him. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew saves us the description of a crucifixion. Do you know why he doesn't write it? Because everybody in that day knew what it was. Everybody had seen it. Everybody had walked by it. Everybody had probably heard it. Consider when they hung someone on a cross with their outstretched arms, the nails through their feet. What was his back touching that was beaten? And if you hang long enough, it becomes difficult to get your breath. So do you know what you have to do to breathe is to push up on your feet to relieve the pressure off of your lungs to gasp for a breath of air and then rest back down. I can't imagine this type of pain. I can't even begin to imagine what it was as I describe and talk about this pain and this suffering. Consider that Jesus suffered willingly. He continued on willingly He could have stopped. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have struck them all dead. But he chose to suffer. He said in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. 
They thought they were crucifying him. He says, no, 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 I'm the one going willingly. I'm doing this. I'm going to endure this pain. It's one thing to be forced to endure such torture. You have no option. You have no choice. But to do it willingly? To endure the scourging? To endure the humiliation? To endure the cross? The nails? To endure all of that willingly? Is there any greater demonstration of love? That he did that for you and for me? Is there anything that he could do to say that I love you more than to say I'm going to endure pain and suffering on the cross so that your sins are going to be forgiven so I can spend eternity with you? You don't have to do anything. You believe, you lay down your life, you follow me. When, when it's over on this earth, you'll be with me forever. I don't, is there any other, can you think of anything he could have done to say I love you more? I can't think of anything. Well, if he'd buy me a new car, the car's going to rot. The car's going to break. A new house. Can you give me this? Can you make me healthy? No. I will make you healthy in eternity. We will spend the rest of eternity together. But I have to take care of this problem you have first. It's called sin. Adam, started with Adam, came through to all of mankind. I've got to do this. I've got to endure it. He did it willingly. If you ever doubt God's love for you, go back and replay the scourging in your mind. Go back and replay and imagine him walking through the streets of Jerusalem carrying the crossbeam to his cross. Watching him fall. Watching the Roman soldier tap Simon the siren, hey, you pick it up, you carry it. And him going with him, barely being able to walk. And then watch, think of him being nailed to the cross. God, do you really love me? How dare us ask that question. We should never consider such a thing. The scriptures tell us they divided his garments and they cast lots for them. That was all that he owned in the world. That was it. That's all he had. What he was wearing. Nothing else. And even if he had owned earthly possessions, like some TV preachers have suggested, what good would they have done him? They were nothing. They divided his garments. As Matthew so often does, once again, he points out another prophecy fulfilled. And it was one that he really couldn't even control. He couldn't control what the other men did, unless, of course, he was God. He couldn't, they, they did this. It was prophesied about the Messiah. It's happening before them. Why is it happening right there before them? Because I think that it was time for the chief priest, another chance. It's happening. The Messiah's garments are going to be divided they're going to cast lots for them there it is right there before them verse 36 sitting down they kept watch over him there this was to keep somebody from stealing him from taking him down we're going to sit down and watch this crazy and they put over his head the accusation written against him this is jesus the king of the jews Earlier in Matthew chapter 27, Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. And Jesus responded, it is as you say. In other words, yes, I am the king of the Jews. John's gospel tells us this was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And the Jewish leaders, they were infuriated that this was written this way. They went to Pilate. They had accused him of blasphemy. Why? Because he said he was the Messiah. He said he was the king for claiming to be king of the Jews. They went to Pilate. They said, Pilate, change it. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. 
I want, we want you to change it, Pilate. We want you to say, he said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, no. What I have written, I have written. In the end, think about this. Even to his death on the cross, his true identity was labeled above his head. They didn't like it. They tried to silence his true identity. It was proclaimed on the cross of his death who he was. Right there for all to see. I can't help but think of when he returns. It'll finally be declared to all the world he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is that now. But he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. As he was being crucified, think about this, he's in the center of sinful humanity. He's in the middle. Robbers, another somebody else being crucified, a guilty man being crucified on his left and a guilty man being crucified on his right. And we're told down in verse 44 a little bit that these criminals, they mocked him. They made fun of him. The people walking by, it said they're wagging their heads. That means they're shaking their head at him. They're looking down upon him. They're saying, I guess you won't be destroying the temple and building it back up in three days like you said you would. You can't even save yourself. If you're the son of God, come on down. Surely the son of God would never be overpowered and forced to a situation like this. This would never happen. Hmm. But he did it willingly. He could have come down. He could have had enough at any moment and said, that's it, I'm done. But he would have failed to purchase our book, failed to purchase us. Charles Spurgeon pointed out again, nothing torments a man in pain more than mockery. Nothing torments a man in pain more than mockery. Have you ever stubbed your toe and had somebody laugh at you? You ever get hurt? You ever watch a kid that gets hurt and his brothers or sisters start laughing at him? It infuriates them. They are, I mean, there's nothing worse than being hurt and someone's making fun or laughing at you. That's what's going on here. Talk about a man in pain, yet he doesn't respond. Along with those passing by and the others being crucified, the chief priests and the elders, they're mocking him as well. I'm not really sure how they could even sit and watch this. I don't know that I would want to sit and really watch a crucifixion. Yet they're walking by, they're, they're talking, they're, they're laughing at him. They're making light of it. I don't know that I could sit and watch this. Verse 41, likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe. They're making themselves God. If you're the king, then come down. You do what we say. He's not going to bow to them. Verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. The robbers were doing the same thing. If you're really the king of Israel, come on down. 
from there. Do you know how easy it would have been for him to jump off the cross? Heal himself immediately? Jump right off there. But they still wouldn't have believed. They'd already seen miracles. He'd already done it. He'd already taught them. They still wouldn't have believed. They acted as if Jesus did what they said. If you do what we say, then we'll believe in you. Yet it's precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others. Think about that. Love kept Jesus on the cross. Love, not nails. He could have jumped off anytime he wanted to. The nails didn't hold him there. His love for you held him there. His love for me. I don't want you to go to eternity in, in hell. So I'm going to pay that price. But you just have to believe in me. We see Jesus did greater than come down from the cross. In our mind, we think, oh, that would be so cruel. That'd be so cool if he could just jump off the cross, strike them all dead, call lightning down from heaven. Wouldn't that be great? He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, I'm going to do something greater. I'm going to let him kill me, then I'm going to rise from the dead. You're not going to, you, you think you've got me killed. You're going to guard my grave and everything else, and I will rise from the dead. He was the temple. You destroyed this temple, meaning his body, and I will rise up in three days. And they knew exactly what he meant, because that's what they're going to go, when they go ask for a Roman guard, that's what they're going to tell uh, Pilate. He said he'd rise in three days. If Jesus, there on the cross, there through the scourging, if he endured their scorn and their mocking... Why as Christians do we find it so difficult when someone wants to make fun of us for what we believe in? Why do we find it so hard to share our faith at work? Why do we find it so difficult to say that we don't watch those things? We don't do those things. We're different than the rest of society. Why do we find the need to be like everybody else? Why do we care what they think? If he endured the mocking and the shame... We should, be not, we should not be moved by the world's failure to accept Christianity either. They rejected him. They're going to reject us. That shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be trying to bring the world into the church to make it grow. The church should be, be full of believers in Jesus Christ, those people that have laid down their life and that are following him. If someone's not a believer, they shouldn't really be comfortable in the church unless they become a believer. We shouldn't look down upon them. We want them to become believers, but there's a... There's a, there's a bond between Christians. That once, once you realize what he did for you, you can't look at life the same. You can't just go on and go, oh, yeah, that's cool. You, no, no, you can't really believe that he died on a cross for your sins, endured this punishment, and go, that's cool. You're moved by that. There's nothing left but, Lord, you, whatever, what do you want me to do? I owe all to you. I owe everything to you. We shouldn't be moved by the world's failure to accept the scriptures. It shouldn't surprise us that the world says, this is right and the scripture says it's wrong, or this is right and the scripture says it's wrong. We, that, that, that should be, we, should, we know that's coming. But yet we should stand on what the scripture says. Clearly, speak what we believe. In our country, we have the freedom of speech. Use it. Share your faith. Do you realize that these people are mocking Jesus for who he really was? They were making fun of him for being a savior, but he really was a savior. They're making fun of him for being a king, but he really was. They're making fun of him for being the son of God, but he really was the son of God. 
Even it says, even the robbers mocked Jesus. Is there any position lower on this earth than hanging on a cross and having the people next to you hanging on a cross making fun of you? Like they've got any room to talk. They're making fun of him. They're mocking him too. This was the peak of God's love for man. How low will you go? This is what he had to do. To, he had to endure this for, I, I, I want to say our salvation, but I think it's better if I say your salvation and my salvation. This is what he had to endure for us. But we also see here in what, how low he had to go, we also see the pinnacle of man's hatred for God. Because God is before them. And look what they're doing to him. He's among them. He's in their midst. He came to earth and this is what they did to him. You say, wait a minute, Rob. You said both, both thieves, both robbers were mocking him, making fun of him. I thought, I thought one of those robbers believed in Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, it says this. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. How are they mocking him, but one is defending him? Let me suggest to you for a moment that they both began mocking him. Perhaps when they were being put on the cross together, and sometime during the process, one of them realized who Jesus was. Maybe he saw the way that he behaved. Maybe it was from his actions. Somewhere along the line, he realized that he really is the Messiah. He really realized who he was, and he had a change of heart. Isn't that the very definition of salvation? Once we realize who Jesus is, and we begin, no, no, we may have made fun of him at one point. We may have not wanted to do with him, but the moment we have that change of heart, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is, this is for real. That's what salvation is all about. Lord, remember me. He recognizes him as Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You are a king. When you get there, don't forget about me. I know I'm a nobody. I know I'm a robber. I know I'm just hours away from death. But I know who you are. Remember me. And what did Jesus say? Too late. Too late for you. No, he didn't say that. He said today. Today. Later on today. We're not going to make it very much longer, bud. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. That's the very, that's salvation. After you die today. After we die, after we're out of here, you will be with me in paradise what a beautiful picture they're on the cross he's not done ministering even in his pain he's ministering in his suffering he's ministering the jews wanted a christ but not a crucified christ jesus proved he was the messiah by going to the cross but in their minds a real messiah would have jumped off the cross come on down they were looking for miracles and not sacrifice. Can I suggest to you the greatest picture of love 
is found in the sacrifice that someone's willing to make. Whether it be in Christ's relationship with us, whether it be in a husband's relationship to a wife or a wife's relationship to a husband. The greatest demonstration of love is the sacrifice that is made. And oftentimes the other person doesn't even realize the sacrifice is made. They cried out. They made fun. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He could have saved himself, but then if he had, he couldn't have saved anybody else. But couldn't there be another way? No, we went through that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. He didn't come to save his life. That wasn't the purpose. He gave his life as a ransom, as a payment for sinners. Consider that. He didn't come to save his life. That's not why he came. He came to die. He was born to die so that we could be saved by believing on him. I don't know how to define love any better. I guess the only question is, do you believe? You see, there's only two answers to that question. And what you say with your mouth doesn't matter nearly as much as what you say with your life. Because when you say, yes, I believe, is, are you living that way? Are you following your belief? He came to give his life so that you and I could be saved. And over the last 2,000 years, Christians, followers of Christ, have died and gone to be with him. Just like the thief on the cross. It's been a little while since we did this. But I want to close tonight's message. I want to give you just a few minutes to go to the Lord quietly in prayer. Perhaps there's something that you need to talk to about him. Perhaps you need to repent. Perhaps you've never realized the sacrifice that he made for you. Maybe you just need to go say thank you and be reminded. So what we're going to do is just take a few minutes. If you don't know the Lord, maybe this would be a good time to believe on him and follow him and accept him. Give your life to him and accept his gift of forgiveness for sins. And if you do know him, spend a little time with him. So we'll take about two or three minutes quietly. Just go before the Lord in prayer. And I'll come back up and I'll close us in prayer. So Father, Lord Jesus, it's really hard for us to imagine what you really endured. But tonight we got a small picture of it. And thank you doesn't seem like enough. So as we come before you over the next couple of minutes, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? May we give you thanks Go before the Lord quietly now on your own.